first, Bobby's gonna tell us a little something via the video. Uh, before I get started here, I understand that I'm supposed to say that the children are dismissed from the sanctuary. <clears throat> Giving honor to God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to my friend and dew drinker also, Pastor Bobby Moss, your shepherd, and also to all the elders here and to all of you. It is good to be among you today to bring God's word and to enjoy fellowship with you who serve Lincoln Park and who serve the city and all around Chicagoland. Give thanks for the New Life uh, churches. Of course, someone that you know with New Life is also my boss, but that's not why I give thanks for you all. Just grateful. I actually used to live about two blocks from New Life uh, Brookfield and know members of their congregation uh, well. <clears throat> this morning, can you turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 3, beginning with the 12th verse, and I will read through verse 16. I'm going to read once now in the ESV, and then as I'm working through the sermon, I will reread some of the verses. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let us pray together. Father, we bless you for your kindness in allowing us to gather to worship and to sing songs to your great and awesome name. <clears throat> Thank you for giving the gift of worship leading to some so that we may approach your throne with joy. Bless them. Thank you for the faithful labor of Pastor Bobby Moss. Give him and all those traveling with him grace as they serve in Israel for this week. We thank you now that we have opportunity to hear your word. Give us grace to hear and obey and grace to preach. May your spirit pour out mercy upon us and upon the city. So now we commend this hour to you with thanksgiving. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most complex puzzles to appear in our lifetime is the Rubik's Cube. A standard 3 by 3 by 3 Rubik's Cube can have... 43 quintillion, 252 quadrillion, 3 trillion, 274 billion, 489 million, 856,000 combinations. That's 43 followed by 18 digits, or 
4.3 times 10 to the 19th power. The mechanical puzzle has 43 quintillion possible combinations, but only one solution. Many people have spent hours trying to complete a solid colored pattern on all six sides of the cube, only to end up completely frustrated. Others go online and read instructions for resolving the puzzle or to find the algorithmic code cracker. Still others, tired of reading, computing, and holding fingers on cubes so as not to lose track of the last blue cube while trying to make sure you're resolving the red, they just peel the stickers off another cube that's mixed up and then put the stickers back with everything solid like they actually worked out the puzzle. In the fall of 2016, to the chagrin of frustrated mechanical puzzle solvers everywhere, a 22-year-old from Australia lowered the world record time of solving a random Rubik's Cube puzzle from 4.74 seconds to 4.73 seconds, besting his own previous world record of 5.66 seconds set in 2011. So it would appear that there is at least one person on the planet who looks at the complexities of the Rubik's Cube, has worked at it until he has mastered it, and now continues to enjoy it. I do not have any numerical factors in front of me, but I bet in the history of Christianity there have been more than 43 quintillion ways of addressing the complexities of maturing in Christ. How does one sustain maturing in Christ? What is that formula? Why does a method toward maturity that worked for you not work for another, or a path that worked for another not work for you or for your spouse or for your child? Why, if I am mature, do I struggle with sin or fall back into ones I thought were defeated when I'm stressed or under pressure? What effort is put into growing, and what is the role of my personal desire to change? If I can't attain full maturity at some point, why do I keep working at it? But if I don't keep working at it, how will I know that I'm saved and that Christ is at work in my life? And if God is sovereign in my growth, why does it seem like my effort in growth actually matters? And so on and so on and so on go the questions. Before you toss aside any hope of finding the answer to sustainable maturity as a Christian, like one who tosses aside a half-done Rubik's Cube after hours of work, Know that Paul has worked out a solution to maturity for us. His solution will correct some misperceptions and well-meaning but false ideas about what it means to grow in Christ. Ideas we all hold. Paul's words today also intend to put works, desire, emotion, passion for growth, discipleship, and God's role in all the right places so that rather than being puzzling, maturing will be a great mosaic that displays the glory of Christ. For Paul, 
tells us that maturing in Christ is not like an algorithmic solution, but it is a pursuit. It is the all-out pursuit of Christ that at the same time is not a pursuit of human effort, but a pursuit that we make only by God's grace as God actually makes the pursuit for us. Grace is going to come to the fore as we talk about how to mature in Christ. So let's look at Philippians 3. As we approach 3.12 through 16, it might be good for us to review 3.1 through 4 to see how our passage fits into the full section. We know that 4.1 is part of this discussion for it's where Paul draws his conclusion. He says, this therefore is how you should stand in the Lord, my brothers. That forms a bookend with 3.1 in which Paul is writing for the safety of the Philippians. For me, for you, it's safe for me to write these things again. Safety from what? Safety from some who Paul labels dogs who are working evil in the congregation at Philippi by promoting circumcision or mutilation of the flesh as a way to stand in Christ. We know that mutilation is a reference to circumcision, for Paul will next say, we are, present status, the true circumcision. This circumcision, in contrast to circumcision in the flesh, is spiritual circumcision. It is an identification of those who worship by the power of the Spirit, who boast or glory in who Christ is and what he has done, and who place no confidence in the power of the act of physical circumcision. It is an identification of those regenerated by the working of Christ. Paul will set himself as an example of one who could rely on works done by human power to maintain his standing in Christ. He could place his confidence in the flesh, but he will not. Flesh here should not be thought of as the power of our bodies to work against us because we are trapped in them as believers. That's a sort of crystal, platonic, maybe even Gnostic view of our bodies that is held by so many believers. You know someone holds this view, even unknowingly, when he or she starts talking or speaking about the problem of the flesh and says, this flesh, while tapping his or her body, it's as if the Adamic or natural or old ways of life are a product of the material body rather than a spiritual problem stemming from Adam's headship of the fallen race. Paul, however, uses the term flesh in many ways. For example, he uses it as bodily flesh only when referring to flesh and blood in Ephesians 6.11. And he uses it of all humanity when he says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in Romans 3.20. But Paul's point here is that getting circumcised or any other work done by human effort is not the path to growing up, and it will not keep your standing in Christ. 
But if this is so, how then do we mature in Christ? Paul will tell us three things. Number one, pursue Christ even though imperfectly as one redeemed by God. Pursue Christ even though imperfectly as one redeemed by God. I'm in 312. Paul says, not that I've already obtained or am perfected. He has counted loss all works done by human effort that he could claim for assurance that he is standing on solid spiritual ground. He does it so that he might know Christ or gain Christ or be found in Christ. These are all synonymous terms in the passage. Yet... The loss and the gain do not mean that he has obtained spiritual perfection even as an apostle. The one who planted the first churches on European soil and debated with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, cast out demons, raised a young man from the dead, and trusted Christ through multiple shipwrecks and multiple lashings 39 times for the sake of Christ. Even he says, but I am not yet perfected. If Paul hasn't reached perfection with all of that, what? What then? He says, but I press. The verb press could be translated pursue. It's the same verb used when Paul speaks of persecuting the church. He actually pursued the church, but in the wrong way. He went all out to find believers and to jail them with permission from the authorities, to have them put to death. He did it with zeal to try to save Judaism from that aberrant Jewish cult that was making its inroads into the synagogues. In Christ, Paul has traded wrong-headed zealous pursuit for another for which he is even more zealous. He is going hard after Christ to grab hold of Christ and have that full knowledge and gain for which he longs to make obtaining Christ his own. And yet, Paul also indicates that he is not doing the work of pursuit, but Christ is doing the work. For Paul pursues to obtain or apprehend because Christ has already apprehended him or Christ has already redeemed him. Apprehended is an intensified form of our verb for take or receive, and sometimes we translate it as seize. Christ has seized him. That is, Christ has seized Paul in salvation to make him his own. Theologically, we refer to this as ownership, this possession or ownership as redemption. And redemption includes justification. It includes being declared righteous in the sight of God. It includes being adopted into God's family and forgiven of all of our sins. Paul pursues hard after Christ, not to gain righteousness, for Christ has given that to him. Neither does he do it for assurance, for assurance comes as part of the package with justification and redemption. Christ has secured our salvation forever in the act of justification. 
Neither is Paul pursuing as the one finally responsible for his own sanctification. For when Christ saves, when he seizes us, the work that he has begun in us, he will complete, Paul says in Philippians 1.6. Christ is completing the pursuit. Christ is completing the growth, the maturity, the conformity to the image of the Son in Paul, not because Paul pursues, but as Paul pursues. In other words, pursuit is a work of God's grace. On this verse, 16th century reformer John Calvin notes, and by the way, I just want you to know, it's always good to quote John Calvin. John Calvin says, Paul adds that he has not yet arrived at the attainment of having entire fellowship in Christ's sufferings, having a full taste of the power of his resurrection, and knowing him perfectly. He teaches, therefore, by his own example, that we ought to make progress and that the knowledge of Christ is an attainment of such difficulty that even those who apply themselves exclusively to it do nevertheless not attain perfection in it so long as they live. The clause, as also I have been apprehended, he has inserted by way of correction that he might inscribe all endeavors to the grace of God. Every believer faces the deadly temptation of trying to measure up to perfection, yet pursuing the perfection that only Christ can provide. The difference is subtle, but it can be measured by examining our goals like in a marriage. The question that I have with every act of growing in my relationship with Pam, my wife, she's sitting here today, is this. Do I want Pam to approve of me, or do I simply want to enjoy Pam? If I'm cleaning and cooking and arriving home from work, honoring her in public because I don't want her to be upset with me, or because I want her to see that I am working to please her so that she will be pleased with me, then I'm not pursuing Pam. I am pursuing my own ends. I am pursuing personal approval. Then I get to feel good about myself if she's happy, or I get to be sorrowful or maybe angry if she's not happy. However, if I'm just hanging out with her, rushing home to be with her and taking a burden off her because I just like being with her and knowing her, I am pursuing her. And believe me, like all wives, she can tell the difference. The Lord, too, can tell the difference in pursuit to my ends of wanting him to be pleased with my attempts to please him versus my pursuit of him as the end simply because he is the chief end of our joy. Paul pursues, but as one imperfect, resting in the grace of the redemption of Christ. Two, pursue Christ, thanking humbly and passionately as one summoned by God. Pursue Christ, thinking humbly and passionately 
as one summoned by God. Verses 13 and 14 again. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's humility runs throughout 3.1 through 4.1. Already he has noted that Christ's resurrection from the dead, uh, uh, his resurrection from the dead, excuse me, rests alone on his union with Christ and Christ's resurrection from the dead and Christ's sufferings for us, 3.10 through 11. Now, even in Paul's all-out pursuit, he admits that he has not yet made knowing or gaining the fullness of Christ his own. He still seeks to know Christ relationally, emotionally, deeply, soulishly. He is not satisfied with his relationship. He wants to know Christ in complete experiential union and obedience and perfection, even after a full pursuit for two decades. Paul is never satisfied with his pursuit of Christ because that would be too close to being confident in the flesh. So he never thinks he has arrived, but still goes after arriving with full might. He communicates such to the church as his brothers and sisters so that they might not feel that such a pursuit is unattainable. But instead, it is available for all those who, like Paul, have been seized into the family of God. These words should have been encouraging to the Philippians. But I could see how they could be discouraging to anyone. Paul is still far from Christ, even though Paul has been chasing him daily. No one likes to go hard after something and never obtain it or have little to show for all their effort. That's the frustration in prayer when we have been seeking justice, provision, or maybe a change in a relationship. That is why a child quits a favorite athletic, musical, dramatic, or other artistic activity after practicing as hard as possible and then not making the squad, traveling team, medal stand, show, or award ceremony. It's just too hard to go all out after something and then walk away with only a moral victory in hand for great effort, best personal performance, or giving the competition the fiercest battle ever. We don't want moral victory. We want the prize in hand. But in the Christian life, when we are seeking to be like Christ, and to have all the enjoyment of our Savior's love, righteousness, peace, mercy, goodness, grace, truth, and everything else that characterizes God the Son, giving up is not an option. It's not an option for Paul. Instead, Paul again says he pursues. There in verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal of the prize. And he does so passionately, not with any hint of resignation or concession. He says, this one thing, this one thing, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. 
The image Paul uses here is of a runner who understands that to look back at another runner would work against one's own effort to win the race. So the runner, nearing the finish line and wanting to beat out the opponent, leans forward toward the line, stretching to reach it first. So now I'm going to give us all a PTSD moment. Like Shawnee Miller of the Bahamas did in the women's 400 meters at the track and field world championships in 2016 to beat out Allison Felix for the gold by .07 section, falling forward to the ground in the process. Shawnee recently retired because she's scared, so Allison can't return the favor in Tokyo. That picture of how a runner strains toward the line is how Paul goes after being more like Christ. That, that picture portrays the passion to which Paul calls the Philippians and calls each of us. Nevertheless, with this combination of humility and passion, Paul does not think his own power of pursuit is what gains the prize. It's not what gains the fullness of Christ for Paul. This is the prize, Paul says, of the upward calling of God. It is the prize of being summoned to the very presence of God. God summoned Paul to final glory when he revealed the gospel to Paul. That is what it means to be saved from the wrath of God and unto the glory of God. God has included the prize in the initial offer so that we cannot mess it up or miss what he has offered to us. Yet, Paul pursues with everything in his being, but the pursuit and the prize again are the working of the grace of God. If you are listening among us as an unbeliever, Today, whether here or listening online or listening asynchronously later, if you're an unbeliever, maybe an atheist or atheist, or you consider yourself an agnostic, or you consider yourself as one with no place for organized religion, or maybe you're one who grew up in the church and leans on that for some sense of soul safety, based on this passage and many others, I Plead with you for you to drop your contemporary forms of circumcision on which your hope of safety rests. What hope, you ask? The hope that allows you to remain indifferent to God and his power to judge your soul. The hope that takes the form of being reassured that you are striving to be a good citizen, maintaining moral niceness, contributing to the good of society or the well-being of your family, and giving generously to alleviate the problems of poverty and suffering of others. These are good works that you do earnestly and zealously. And I, for one, just want you to know that I'm actually happy that you were doing these sorts of things rather than stealing the retirement funds of hardworking people or plotting terrorist events. I appreciate you doing good things. However, these good works before God are still works. 
and they do nothing to gain you a righteous standing before God, even if they are anti-terrorism or pro-justice events. They are just as bankrupt spiritually as severing one's foreskin and building a resume as impeccable as the Apostle Paul's. You cannot gain Christ by holding up your social or professional dossier to God and saying, here, creator, aren't you impressed by what I am doing? He's not impressed. He's not impressed by what you're doing. He's not impressed by anything I'm doing. And he certainly is not so impressed that he can overlook sin, which are many, if you and I will be honest with ourselves for just a minute. God only is impressed by Christ, who completed the work of salvation by taking the wrath of God in himself in place of you and me and in place of your sins and my sins and doing so while obeying God with absolute righteousness and perfection, which is also known as the Easter story. Christ offers his righteousness to you freely when you place all of your hope for heaven in him, all of your hope for standing in the presence of God in Christ alone. When you believe on Christ alone, the prize of Christ is guaranteed to you. Three, pursue Christ corporately as one awaiting revelation from God. Pursue Christ corporately as one awaiting revelation from God. Verses 15 and 16, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Even in this final admonition, Paul's words are full of grace. He says that all those who are mature should think this way, what he just described. So even though he admits that he and we cannot reach full perfection, there is a sense in which we already are mature in Christ. The mature pursue after Christ imperfectly, humbly, passionately, all the while, knowing that it is a work of God. They are working out their own salvation in fear and trembling, for God is working in them to will and do of his good pleasure, as Paul already said in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul called the entire Philippian assembly to think of maturity in this way. It is a matter of corporate agreement. Yet, for those who could not see things as Paul was teaching them at that moment, Paul had full confidence that God would be the one to make things known to them. Paul did not demand that they press as he pressed, pursued as he pursued the moment that he said these words. Instead, as they were already apprehended or seized by Christ and already called upwardly by God to see the fullness of Christ, Paul offered to them to continue to stand in the grace they were already experiencing. Sure, 
He wanted them to imitate him and Epaphroditus and Timothy, even as they imitated Christ and strove hard after Christ. But if anyone couldn't get it in gear at the time of reading this circulating epistle, hope was not lost because God was already working in them. So here, Paul amazingly frees the Philippians from a burdening, cookie-cutter, assembly-line approach to maturing in Christ. They do not have to try to turn on pursuit if they just don't get it. It was okay for these believers to say, I'm not quite there yet. Or, Paul, that's too much for me right now. Or, Paul, that's a tall order. I'm not sure I'm up to it. My life is a mess right now, and I'm just trying to make it to the end of each day with my sanity and the little strength that I have. To Paul, that was okay. It was okay for someone in Christ to say that because God is the Savior, and God would bring them to a place of understanding and growth. It's an unfortunate truth that Hazing takes place in sports, businesses, and families. The cycle of hazing in an entity retains ethos status because the members of the entity lie to themselves and say, this builds character, and that's how I learned, and this will make a man or woman out of you, all the while subtly exacting vengeance on that rookie, that freshman, that white belt, that new employee, neophyte, or child for, lack, for the lack of guidance or care that you received at that stage. The truth is that you and I do not want someone to have an advantage that we did not have. Now, I get the martial arts form of hazing. If we pansy you at white belt and yellow belt, you will never make it to red or brown or black belt, for you will not develop the toughness for real physical punches, grips, and kicks, and throws. But you do not help someone become a better baseball player by making him carry all the team's bags for his first year as a player on the team. Neither do you make a better employee by making him or her fetch resources ex nihilo because that's what you had to do as a new employee. The you must mature the way I matured mentality is prevalent in society, even in families. If you did without, it builds character for your children to do without. You're right. It builds the character known as resentment, which is what you are passing on to a child in the mask of frugality and learning the value of a dollar. But Grace says there are zillions of ways for the creator to mature people, and it does not have to look like the way it worked in me. It might look like the way it worked in me, that is, a form of grace that the Creator gives to some through faithful parenting and faithful discipleship ministry as He wills to do. But 
If you or I ever think that maturing through the forms we use to mature is absolute, we're going to be hurting parents and servants when a child or believer does not respond to our standard paths of maturity. You know what we need to stay instead? God, do not let me try to manipulate another's maturity. I trust you to mature them just as I am trusting you to keep us both in a righteous standing before you. Our real motivation for maturity is that any disciple is really a disciple. But even that's not up to us. That's still up to God. See, Christ does not haze. Jesus walked this earth and he took the abuse from people who said he had a demon and pain from his own who rejected him. And yes, by the way, Jesus was rejected. In Gethsemane, he took the agony of unfulfilled desire for something less painful. And he took false accusation, flogging, spitting, and mocking with no need to make you or I go through the same, even though that was his path to glory. No, Jesus does not haze. He takes our hazings on himself on the cross. He takes death, all the while completely forgiving rather than exacting vengeance on us. And he gets up from the dead in power, offering life freely when we trust him. Often adult believers fear we will lose morality and culture if we do not demand moral conformity by a younger generation. What then really happens? We lose our kids to the world by employing unnecessary ancient mechanics to a generation who has a social context of development that differs from the ones that were ours in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, and now for you who are younger, the early 2000s. They do not need, our children do not need more Hosanna or Hillsong music. They do not need large group Bible study or even some of our small group studies. They do not need training union or the famous favorite Christian camp from our teen years. What they need is Christ. In whatever form, creative means, God chooses to reveal Christ. And whenever he chooses to reveal more of the loveliness of Christ to our children. So how do we put into practice Paul's pursuit when the mechanics are not described? I would suggest that we learn from what the reformers called the ordinary means of grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 88, asks, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The catechism's answer is, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Thus, in order to pursue Christ at minimum, 
we will maintain weekly participation in corporate worship, including enjoying regularly the Lord's Supper and celebrating baptism with those being baptized. When people are being baptized, even if it's no one in our family, we're going to show up. It is in these things that we revisit reapply and reaffirm the gospel and is working in us as the gospel is preached, read, sung, prayed, and displayed in the bread and the wine and the bowing in death and rising again in life in baptism. It is in these things and things like the Lord's Prayer which Christ commands and is not an additive from a particular generation. It is in these things that our prayers are shaped and life begins to align with God's will in heaven. It is meditation on the word which Christ commands that tells me the character I am to embrace in order to become more like Christ. So I pursue making worship of him more passionate, attentive, prioritized, truthful, and spirit-empowered because to go after him is to say that he is the worthiest object of my desire. I pursue by making time for knowing him through his word and prayer daily because to pursue is to build a relationship in which I enjoy his voice and enjoy sharing mine with him in utter dependency. I pursue forgiveness of other people who have harmed me because that's what Christ did, and to gain more Christ is to do as he did. And it is being obedient to his commandments because pursuing Christ is to be obedient to him. Otherwise, I am not pursuing him, but I am pursuing my figment of him. There's nothing flashy about pursuit. Leaving the slough of despond to find Mr. Morality Christian still is the wrong idea. You do not have to change your job. You do not have to answer a call to ministry or mission. You don't have to liquidate all your assets. Instead, you will pursue Christ getting up tomorrow morning to go to a job you love or hate. To play with your children, to pay your bills, enjoy your neighbor, try to figure out how to honor your aging parents more, send a birthday card to your grandchild, share with your siblings, work on exercise and a better diet, fail at some or all of these, throw up your hands in frustration and go back to Christ for more mercy, all the while wanting more and knowing that he has seized you and summoned you to the complete work of his glory. I want Christ like you want Christ. I want more Christ now, more than I have ever wanted him. And hopefully, a year and ten years from now, I will say the same. I will not obtain all of Christ until I see him face to face in the fullness of all of his glory. But you and I are headed that way as much as God works in us even as he is working in others. The puzzle of gaining Christ is complex, but it is not unresolvable. 
for Christ has solved it for us by his grace, even as we strive to know him better. Let's pray. Father, it is all the working of your grace and grace alone. As Paul elsewhere says, I worked harder than any of the other apostles, but it was not I, it was grace. May we, God, bask in the grace that is ours in Christ. So even if we're not there yet, even if we don't get it, even if we don't have strength, even if today is not today, even if we're just hanging on by a thread, we are reminded and assured that the offer made to us in the beginning when we believed brought with it the final prize so that we will have all of Christ. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Feel free to stand as we close in a worship, song of worship.